This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. A warning, this episode contains explicit language. In the new movie The Creator, humanity, some of it anyway, is at war with artificial intelligence. It's an increasingly rare kind of big studio science fiction film, one that's not based on any existing outside intellectual property. The Creator stars John David Washington as a former soldier who's been recruited to find and kill the creator of a powerful AI weapon. And the film's big themes involve the role of AI, the brutality of war, and the building blocks of life and society. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today we are talking about The Creator on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining us today is NPR producer Mark Rivers. Hey, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Great to have you. Also with us, Vulture TV critic Roxana Haddadi. Hey, Roxana. Thank you for having me on. Delighted to have you both. So the creator is set in a dystopian future where a nuclear blast in L.A. has sparked a world war in which the U.S. battles the forces of artificial intelligence. AI has been embraced by other parts of the world where human-like robots have integrated into society. Leaders of the U.S. military, though, are bent on wiping out the creator of advanced AI, as well as an unusual weapon that holds the key to ending the war once and for all. Early on, military leaders including a hard-bitten colonel, played by Allison Janney, recruit a former Special Forces agent named Joshua, played by John David Washington. Joshua's task is to hunt down and destroy the weapon, but his mission is complicated when he learns that the weapon in question exists in the form of a young child named Alfie. She's played by Madeline Una Voiles. Joshua is already grieving the traumatic loss of his pregnant wife, played by Gemma Chan. The creator tells a complex story with an epic sweep, and the film presents both sides of its conflict, which features epic battles and sprawls across multiple continents. But as big and expensive as it looks, the movie reportedly only cost $80 million to make. It's directed by Gareth Edwards, who directed Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. The creator is in theaters now. Glenn, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of the creator? Um, well, I mean, there's this movie, right? And then there's, as we mentioned at the top, what this movie represents. It is an original science fiction film, not based on existing IP. But more than that, it's an expensive-looking, theatrically released one that isn't going to sink into the depths of Apple Plus or Netflix anytime soon. It doesn't also feel like, to me, like it's just waiting around to launch a uh, multi-platform, cross-vertical franchise experience. I mean, I do not see creator-themed Denny's breakfast menus in the future or a theme park ride. It just wants to tell a story, right? It just wants to tell a story that's pretty dark and pretty adult, and that's to be commended. It's a risk, and we don't see a lot of risks nowadays in, uh, in filmmaking and film releasing. I think it's a bigger financial risk than it is an artistic one because I don't think what it has to say about AI is particularly new. But it occurred to me sitting there watching it that when so much of filmmaking, particularly blockbuster filmmaking, depends on success in Asian markets, do I think that the film's decision to make the citizens of New Asia the good guys and Americans the bad guys, do I think that's fully intentional? And do I think it's maybe a wee bit cynical? Yeah, yeah, on all three counts. But you can't say this film doesn't do fit the brief, right, of what science fiction is supposed to do, which is to comment on something that's very real in the world today, whether that's use of overseas labor or the abuse and exploitation of uh, and co-opting of other cultures. And we'll talk about the production design, which is, you know, James Klein. His roots go back to Lucasfilm and ILM. 
There are set pieces in this film that really stuck with me. We'll talk about maybe a couple of them. But ultimately, because of the thinness of the themes that I talked about, I think this movie, I appreciate the swing, but I think it ends up being more fun to look at than it is to think about. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting you talk about risk. I mean, I think this movie is coming out in kind of an interesting time, right? Like, there's like fatigue with IP and franchises right now, right? And Gareth Edwards was like a part of that class of filmmakers like the Russo brothers and Contrabaro and James Gunn who kind of started out with these quirky indie movies and then kind of like disappeared into the hungry maw of like franchises (laughs) and IP, right? right? And it'll be interesting to see if this movie that isn't based on IP or anything can be sold on a simple thing, which is it looks kind of cool. And that was the way movies used to be sold all the time. Thinking of this movie as an original movie, I couldn't help but think about this movie seems to be made up of ingredients of other better movies, you know, whether it's Blade Runner, whether it's AI, whether it's, you know, Ex Machina, The Terminator. I don't think it really added much new to the discussion on AI. I think about this great critique of Ex Machina, but it was just like, what if hot? (laughs) Like, was like essentially the premise of that movie. And in this movie, it's really just, what if cute? Like, Watson's character has to essentially uh, look after a kid who's also AI. And we've seen stories like that before. It's another kind of lone wolf in the cub kind of situation. The best movies about technology and AI kind of have something to say about how we interact with each other or have something to say about the way AI is going to change us or tech is going to change us. And I think this movie didn't really dwell deep enough into any of that. It was really just kind of... AI, they look like us. And, and that was kind of the, the long and short of their kind of like exploration of AI. Um, I think this guy is, he is, he is not an untalented filmmaker, but I, it, felt, it just felt thin. It felt like I was watching pieces of other better movies and not really this own singular creation. Okay. How about you, Roxana? Yeah, I think I probably fall along that spectrum. I mean, I am like a Gareth Edwards apologist. <laughs> like, I love monsters. I really strongly love his Godzilla. I think it's very smart the way that movie plays not showing us Godzilla. Mm. And I love Rogue One, even though it's arguable how much that movie remained his movie. So I had really high expectations. And visually, I think this movie fulfilled them. There are some really amazing moments. I don't think it's a spoiler to say there is a moment here where the U.S. military uses sentient robot suicide bombers like there's yeah. some really wild stuff happening that's a really powerful yeah. scene that's the, it's one of the set pieces i was talking about yeah yeah from a production design standpoint there is amazing stuff and i am very open to any movie that is like american imperialism bad like <laughs> yeah it's uh-huh. so easy to hook me with that premise but i don't know man like this dialogue is pretty thin I think the characters are pretty thin and ultimately it feels like this movie is doing this thing where it says like, hey, your enemies are just like you. (laughs) And I am exhausted by that, I think. I really dislike the flattening that this movie does in terms of like who the AI actually are and how it reduces the themes of the movie just to like, They remind you of humans, don't they? And don't you care about humans? And like, there's a little (laughs) bit more to sci-fi, I think, than that. So I walked away like a little disappointed. I mean, probably more than a little disappointed. Like, I would love to rewatch this film, but I don't know how much I want to like revisit 
these themes. Well, and when we're talking about the spare parts that make up the plot of this movie, I mean, even the presentation of the American military as this kind of military-industrial complex run amok fueled by rage, it's not that different from the presentation of the military in the Avatar movies. Sure. There's a very memorable scene in this film where this absolutely gigantic, like, mega tank is rolling through and blowing things up and killing people. But it's very, very, very reminiscent of a very similar scene in an Avatar movie where a gigantic mega tank is rolling through. And Mm -hmm. I think I share a lot of y'all's general sense of this film. I did admire it. I admire the fact that it's not IP. I was very, very ready for kind of a a big science fiction action thriller that is not just regurgitating some origin story I already know about. It's not Star Wars the creator. It's just just the creator. Sure. Yeah, it's just the creator. And I think I think that's admirable. And I do think some of this world building I liked, I think maybe more than you guys did. I was really intrigued by some of the way showing without telling that the AI societies have kind of built themselves up. Some of the stuff around AI practice of religion, I thought, had some interesting ideas behind it. I think you guys alluded to the scene where these kind of giant robot garbage cans storming through and blowing themselves up is was really pretty stunning to watch. And I really kind of sat there, you know, mouth agape at how effective that scene was. I think there were a lot of individual components of good ideas in this film. For me, where this film lost me was in its third act and where it kind of makes this shift, I think, from world building that I thought was interesting, from the kind of shifting motivations and questions around, you know, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and why. I thought that stuff was pretty interesting, and I was rolling along with it. Once it kind of got into the mechanics of blowing stuff up and, like, final battles, all set to this, I thought, really overbearing Hans Zimmer score. I found it kind of enervating. Yeah. You know, and so by the end, it kind of lost me and it was going for some of the emotional beats. I'm a very easy guy to manipulate. I'm not very smart. Um, <laughs> I found myself really strangely unmoved by it. Yeah, this is not going to surprise you, but like the where it lost me is in the third act was not the big explosions because I expected big explosions. What sure. was in the emotional beats? Mm-hmm. I was reminded that the original title of this film as it was being filmed was True love, which, oof. I mean, things get awful schmoopy, <laughs> awfully quick, and it lunges for these heartstrings that I have had surgically removed for decades now. But when the movie had me was when its visuals and its narrative kind of put me in the headspace of Blade Runner. You know, dark but not depressing, mm. adult but not boring. But that's when it really underscored to me, Stephen, when I realized that this film does not have a lot more to say about the nature of AI, the nature of machine sentience, than human or machine, we're all just executing our programming. It doesn't have to be new, but it has to iterate in some way to kind of validate its existence. And right now, what's validated in existence is how good this looks. I thought the beginning had one of the more bracing scenes for me, which was a kind of like newsreel of presenting how AI was being slowly interwoven into society. And there's this kind of like happy kind of like voice to it and how useful they're being overlaid over a, a scene of like robots fighting or engaging in protesters. And I had this like jolt of like visceral like panic and like familiarity. Like I felt like that was a like a dispatch from the future. Like that part inured me. And then from that to a quick cut of, like, a nuclear explosion, I think that really eloquently just conveyed 
how things can go from bad to catastrophic, you know, like, like without you even like paying attention. <laughs> I think we have to talk about the central, central problem to this movie for me, which I'm sorry to say is John David Washington. I was waiting. I was waiting for someone to bring that up. Okay. Yeah. All right. Talk to me. So I have been trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. but I do not think he has it. It's like he makes acting the pretending that it is. <laughs> like, oh, like, wow. like no. he's saying the lines, wow. but like he's not saying the emo- he's not conveying the emotions. There's nothing behind them. Any scene in the movie where I was supposed to care about his relationship, his past relationship, um, or with this kid he's been tasked with uh, protecting. I just do not believe him. I, I, I really don't. And I, I, I want to. I don't really care how that was about nepotism. If you can act, I don't care. I don't think he has it, guys. For me, I thought, I don't necessarily disagree. Like, I think John David Washington, overall, his filmography has been sort of up and down. <laughs> but I thought that was more of a scripting problem. Right, that's That was sort of my take. Mm. Because I don't think any of these characters... Aside from Alice and Janney, who's driven just, like, by a hatred of New Asia, I don't think any of them have, uh-huh. like, really strong motivating factors. Fair. You meet sort of the mastermind of the AI resistance movement, and their motivations really, as I said before, just come down to they're kinder than humans, which I, okay, <laughs> what else, though? Yeah. There is a lot of um, visual flair here that sort of covers up the fact that we don't really know who these characters are. And I would be remiss Uh to say that even the visual flair, like I went into this movie wanting the best for Gareth Edwards, but there was like a mini scandal earlier this year, which didn't get a lot of press Mm -hmm. in that someone on Reddit noticed that there is a scene in the trailer that basically takes footage from the Beirut 2020 explosion and just repurposes it for this movie. And I found that really Uh gross. And it was allegedly an accident that it got into the trailer. It was just like a stand-in for visual effects. But there's something there about like repurposing ideas without adding much to them Uh that I think might be a a larger thematic concern for this film. Aside from the moment where they have American soldiers getting hyped to Radiohead before like a war scene. (laughs) Which I I did not buy that either. I was like, I love this song, but... To me, I'd be like, oh, we're going to die is what this song is saying to me. That, that specific song choice. Yeah, it doesn't have enough. I mean, the, structurally, this film is very Hollywood. It's tight narratively because, you know, if, if this was made by a Luc Besson, like Fifth Element or Stephen, remember Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets? You and I slog through that oh together. Um, I sure do. They're just throwing out ideas <laughs> and colors and notions. And it he doesn't particularly care what sticks to the wall because spectacle world building is the, is the point. Here, that is very much not the case. Here, it's all very nailed down. If we see a kind of cool science fiction-y device once, we know it's going to come back and be used in a way that is important to the plot. It's efficient. Hollywood screenplays love callbacks. Despite that, (laughs) I thought we kind of went off the rails in the the third act, as, as again, many Hollywood screenplays do. Coming out of it, it's like I definitely didn't actively dislike it, but it just feels like this almost rough draft of a movie. I do think that there's an argument to be made that this would have been more effective as a miniseries or as a mm. as a TV drama. Stephen, we have we have enough of those, Stephen. We already have we already <laughs> have too many of those. As the TV critic, I must say Stephen is correct. <laughs> but I just I found a lot of the world building to be centered on some really interesting ideas, but once this thing gets into this kind of Byzantine, this person has to get from point A to point Z, but this is all in the middle and I'm just trying to keep track of where people even are and then like all of a sudden they kind of introduce this new military bad guy who is like 
you didn't have access to Arlie Ermy anymore. So you got this guy, <laughs> you know, yeah. where just everything suddenly felt so blunt and just so hammered home in ways that I think didn't serve the first big chunk of the movie very well. I co-signed the TV idea because where this movie ends is exactly where I hate when movies of this type end this way, which was not an articulate way to phrase that. <laughs> it's about to go into a place where I'm like, okay, what does happen next, though? Like, what is the reconstruction version of this story? Yeah. But we just end in a way that I'm like, oh, okay, all right, well, we could have done, I don't know, six more hours of this in episodic format, but we don't. Well, speaking of TV, I will say that when Alice and Jenny gets that speech about what the robots did to her family, I indulge myself. I imagine, okay, this is what happens to C.J. Craig <laughs> in a post-President Santos future. <laughs> she becomes this awesome, hard-bitten lieutenant colonel. That was my that – was, that's where I went with that. All right. Well, we want to know what you think about the creator. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week? Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. Now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What's making us happy this week? Roxana Haddadi, what's making you happy this week? Uh, what is making me happy this week is earlier this summer, I realized that one of my secret favorite authors, John Grisham, Wrote a sequel to The Firm, <laughs> which is one of my secret favorite books. Not so secret anymore. Uh, called The Exchange, which is coming out this fall. So I decided to just read every single one of John Grisham's books <laughs> in the summer. And those have been really fun to revisit. They're, of course, like pulpy and sort of goofy. They're, you know, pretty much all about lawyers doing lawyer stuff. <laughs> you don't say. I know. But as the books continue, they take on really surprising anti-authoritarian, anti-cop, anti-like big law themes, which I did not necessarily expect. And they've just been really gratifying in that they show an author who, to me, was like writing books that kept up with a changing America. 
And that's been really fun. They're pretty much all available through my local library. So what's making me happy this week is John Grisham's books, and especially the new one coming out, the sequel to The Firm, The Exchange. Thank you, Roxana. Mark Rivers, what's making you happy this week? So I've been listening to a podcast from The Ringer, which is this culture and, you know, movies and culture website, from Brian Raftery, who basically, like, makes work that speaks directly to my soul. Like, he wrote a book about the year 1999 Mm -hmm. in movies. Um, He also did a podcast about Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. And this latest one he has is called Do We Get to Win This Time, which is about the way the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. has been betrayed in movies. It's just, it's a really fascinating contrast between how Hollywood, say, approached, you know, World War II. It was easy. You know, the bad guys were obvious, the good guys were obvious. And Vietnam, for one, was a war that Hollywood, for years, just would not touch. This was obviously a war that was, the first war that was, like, televised, so you were seeing people die on screen. And Hollywood executives did not want to see people die in Vietnam. We were also seeing people die in Vietnam for real. So the podcast is just a really fascinating peek back into that history and the ways that Hollywood kind of got to rewrite the narrative of that war, you know, and, and rewrite the way it played out. And it's it's a podcast about the ways that Hollywood has always been kind of tentative or nervous around morally and politically complex stories and situations and, and wars. So if you like movies and, and you like history, like this is the perfect combination of the two. Really great interviews with as well. Um, so yeah, do we get to win this time, which comes from a line from a Rambo movie. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Mark Rivers. Glenn Weldon, what's making you happy this week? Uh, well, Deadlock, L-O-C-H, is a prime video series. That's what uh, Broadchurch, Broadchurch would have been had it been played as a comedy. <laughs> the creators, uh, Kate McCartney and Kate McClellan, are very upfront with that. They, they watched Broadchurch, and as they were writing this series, the working title of it was Funny Broadchurch. So, truth in advertising. <laughs> Setup is exactly the same. Very small coastal town where everybody knows each other. Uh, this one is in Tasmania. Uh, two wildly mismatched detectives investigating a series of murders. Um, gratifyingly, the story itself is dark and twisty and fun because you are constantly tossing out all these red herrings, constantly pointing your finger at different people in the town. So that's not played for laughs. But the dialogue very much is. The characters, specifically the interaction of the detectives played by Kate Box and Madeline Sami, very funny. This is about the point where I mentioned that Amazon supports NPR and pays to distribute some of our content. But uh, never mind that. Deadlock on Prime Video is what's making me happy this week. Nice. Thank you, Glenn Weldon. What is making me happy is a new album out today called Bury the Lead by one of my favorite artists. She is a singer. She is a rapper. She is an author. She is a poet, a uh, many-hyphened artist named Dessa. She's just a brilliant mind and somebody who just does wonderful work traversing genres in unexpected ways. And listening to this album, she's always worked in hip-hop, infusing it with a lot of sung portions. This record still has that, but mixes it in with songs that are kind of poppier in feel and approach. Let's actually hear a little bit of the song what if I'm not ready? Walking on the yellow line, go ahead and write your traffic ticket. I thought I was hard as fuck, I thought I was on a mission. Jump cut to the present days, look at the same sharp tone, same long face. Pride is my problem, I know that's right, but that don't solve it. I don't like favors. So that's Dessa, just an unbelievably 
assured and wonderful, brilliant mind. Uh, you know, every song is just is just kind of threatening to go in six different directions at once, but in the best possible way. That's Dessa. Her new album is Bury the Lead, and that is what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Roxana Haddadi, Mark Rivers, Glenn Weldon, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fathima and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Stephen Thompson, and we will see you all next week. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.